Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Welcome to the latest edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek. Saqib Ali is producing the show, um, but uh, I'll, I'll be, I'll be uh, hosting and have a very special guest on Devang Desai. He works for Sportsnet, the, the great uh, sports broadcast outlet uh, in Canada. You know, Canadians definitely know if you want to get uh, elite sports coverage uh, across the board, hockey, CFL, whatever, you want to turn <laughs> to Sportsnet uh, to, to get, you know, inside, in-depth sports coverage. So Devang was working for Sportsnet, talked to some people on the ground at the ATP uh, 1000 point tournament in Toronto. So we're going to get into, you know, some of the people that uh, Devang was able to interview uh, for Sportsnet in Toronto. But before we get to those, uh, those interviews and, and the, that insider access, that's uh, part of what we want to highlight on the show. We want to get Devang's uh, thoughts on Montreal and Toronto champions, the runner ups or runners up, I should say. And, uh, the, the other uh, notable stories of these two tournaments. So first of all, welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. And let's just, you were on the ground in Toronto. So like, we're going to be able to get more details from you there. But let's just start with Montreal and the WTA. Jessica Pagula winning the title less than uh, 400 miles away from her home in Buffalo. Um, you know, so it's not, it wasn't so much, there's no place like home, but there's no place like, close to home uh your overview of uh the wta in montreal before we uh get your insights on toronto thanks for having me guys um yeah montreal i think if you looked at the quarterfinals you would you would believe that this is the best possible outcome or close to it for the organizers in the sense of who is still in the tournament but i I think unfortunately this week in montreal was defined a bit by the the weather and and the rain they had and and how they had to kind of jam in the last few matches and and Samsonova and Pagula being Samsonova's second match of the day. Nothing to take away from Jess Pagula and and what she was able to do. She was excellent, especially uh, withstanding Cotton Eye Joe Gate in the semifinal against Ego. But I, I think overall, I was a bit keyed in on the big three between Sviantek, Rivakina, and Sabalenka, but also kind of looking at the other people that can do damage on the hard courts in this North American swing. And I, I really keyed in on that Jess Pagula, uh, Coco Goff match. And, uh, and what did you think of that uh, Goff Pagula match? It was obviously uh, extremely close, very tense. And, uh, you know, both players know each other. Well, they are a doubles team. What, what did you, uh, what did you uh, see in that match and what did you take away from it? Funny enough, I know she won the title, but I, I think considering the year Coco has had, I took a lot away from that to consider that she is someone that will challenge in New York and in Cincinnati. I feel like her game struggling on the other surfaces aside on hard court, she's so dangerous. So I think to see her 
pick pick it back up and and get some things together. Though she did lose in the quarterfinals, I thought ultimately that was super satisfying. I know where this cal- where this tournament falls in the calendar. It's not necessarily a case of players trying to peak at this time, but maybe get their bodies right for what's to come. And in the sense of Coco, I think it's about regaining some confidence. So even though she lost that match against someone she knows extremely well, I was I was p- pleased to see that Matt in the sense of, of getting back to her old self. All right, you mentioned the big three of uh, Elena Rybakina, Arena Sabalenka, and Iga Svantec. You know, so none of them uh, were able to make the final, let alone uh, win the tournament. Of the three, it, it, any con- any particular concerns you would identify in any of the three players? Now, you know, Rybakina, I'd say would would rate as a separate case yeah. because you know her shoulder was heavily taped up. And, you know, she played a very long, late quarterfinal, uh, went deep into the night, and uh, yeah, and her shoulder was not 100%. So it's kind of easy to say, well, she just needs to get physically healthy for the U.S. Open. But with Sviantec and, and Sabalenka, not so much injury and, and health concerns. Any particular notes or takeaways on the WTA Big Three? I, I, yeah, and I think like Iga also was disadvantaged a bit by the scheduling and what ended up happening to her matches and the fact that she had to come out three separate times to get that Bukova match done. It obviously didn't help. So I, I, I struggle to make a big proclamation regarding her. I will say though, her problems on serve in that semifinal were a huge eye opener and she's playing an excellent returner, someone with an all court game. So maybe it shouldn't be a huge surprise, but I do think this was not Iga's cleanest tournament. And the fact that she did survive until the semifinals goes to show you that maybe some of the more uglier elements of her game, winning ugly, are are growing in a sense that I don't think she was playing that well, but did make it as far as she did. And that's not to say that uh, she can improve when we get to the US Open. We obviously saw that last year, but I found the level for all three of those players, and especially Sabalenka, very uneven this week in Montreal. And maybe that's an idea of pacing themselves, but it also leads me to believe like there is a big three. And I know that these three players have done well, well, more than enough, sorry, to, to garner that position. The margin is so small between them and the rest of the tour. And we can call them the big three, but it's still, it's asking a lot to pick them against the field, even though they've done so much so recently. Got to ask about one more WTA player, and that was the runner-up, Lyudmila Samsonova. Had a great week, you know, and and she did not win a ton of matches on tour in the first half of the season. And this is something that comes up when we get to Canada every year, Devang, uh, that you get a player who, you know, hasn't piled up a lot of court time in the first half of the year, especially not on clay and grass, and it comes to the... summer North American hardcourt season relatively fresh and one of the the questions with players who are able to make a move at this time of year in August is does it seem sustainable does it seem like something that's going to morph into long-term quality long-term results or does it seem like which is one of those August explosions like Borna Chorich has done this in Cincinnati uh you know and we've had plenty of other players who get really hot in August uh, maybe carry it through October uh, and the latter portion of the season, but then you get to the new 
season in January and poof, you know, that's gone. They just ride the wave very briefly. So with Sam Sanova, do you think this is a story of someone who's just going to briefly ride the wave and and then disappear just as quickly? Or do you see something in what Sam Sanova did in Montreal that points to, hey, she's here to stay. I see some staying power here. I definitely think she can be a threat at the U.S. Open. I mean, last year, she kind of mimicked uh, what we're about to see this year, if it all goes well. Like, she started her hardcourt swing last year in Washington, made the final, didn't play in Toronto last year, but then went to the land tournament in, in Cleveland and made the final there and then made the round of 16 at the U.S. Open, which, I mean, it took a really game, Alia Tomjanovic, to take her out of that tournament. It seems to me that she likes to start maybe peaking at this time, Matt, and this hardcourt swing is exactly when maybe uh, the time is right for her to, to garner some wins because, yeah, I mean, overall, her season so far has not been super impressive but that's nearly identical to what happened last year i mean on a hard court though it makes a lot of sense of why she's so um successful and i felt like she was maybe more aggressive than i've seen her um ever this week especially in the the benchage match after sabalenka i think following up a match like that against arena sabalenka where you notch a huge win the letdown factor is obviously a big thing to worry about but i thought against benchage and then in that really strange Rebacana match. She was excellent. And I do think the aggression will help her as the course get faster. Cause I, I did Montreal and Toronto were a bit similar. They're, they're a bit sticky. I don't think they're Indian well sticky, but they're not Cincinnati fast. So I think in terms of leveling up and getting to a place where she met, she might've found herself last year after having so much success in Washington, this feels eerily uh, familiar. All right. So that's, you know, a, a brief look at Montreal, but of course you were on site in Toronto and so we definitely want to get into the interviews that you did with some notables uh, on site for Sportsnet. But first, your overview of the Toronto ATP tournament. And of course, you know, I'm sure when you and the other uh, tennis experts at Sportsnet sat down to fill out your bracket sheets for the tournament, I know that all, all of you in the room at Sportsnet had, uh, you know, Sinner, Demon Hour. Uh, <laughs> Bikina, uh, and Tommy Paul in the semifinals. I know you had all four of those players uh, on your bracket sheets. So what the heck happened? You know, w- was this chaos uh, something that you guys were thinking, you know, actually this, this tournament could just blow wide open or, uh, you know, did, you know, were you expecting this to be a pretty orderly procession for Carlos Alcaraz and how much did the results either, come across as you know we could see this coming or wow this this just came totally out of left field uh, a little column a a little column b i think like i mentioned about where this tournament falls in the calendar there is still a bit of the post wimbledon malaise going and i know quite a few players went to washington but quite a few of the top seeds did not so i do feel like this was a kind of re-emerging party where it's like hey everyone we're back for the hardcore season let's see how this goes like last year we had Pablo Carrena Busta versus Hubie Hercatch in the final, which probably would not be predicted by most either. So I was sort of ready for an outside the box final, but I did not have Yannick Sitter and Alex Diemenauer there. I think for me, it was a lot about Carlos Alcaraz. This was his first trip to Toronto. There was a huge buzz. Uh, his practice session over the weekend before the tournament started 
drew 5,000 people, which I think in these parts is a massive deal. We would have seen this with the likes of Nadal, Joker, and, and Federer, but not for someone this young, new on the scene. So I thought that was an amazing sign. And I think you could tell the buzz around the grounds was about Carlos and and how far he could get and how many primetime matches of his we could get. So I feel like that the Alcaraz factor was the story along with the Canadians who admittedly had not been having a great year up to this point. So it was all about Carlos. And I think then as we got a bit deeper into the tournament, some new stories emerged. I think Gail Monfils was arguably the biggest fan favorite outside of Alcaraz and the Canadians for the, the Canadian fans there in attendance. He was a huge draw to see him perform the way he did and push the Annex Center, the ultimate champion, the three sets was pretty miraculous. But I think if you ask the organizers, Matt, before the tournament, what their goals would have been or what they would have liked to see for the final if it could, if it wasn't going to be Carlos Alcaraz, I think Yannick Sinner might have been their second choice because, as we've talked about a lot on your show, I know, and, and on our show, Open Era, and, and everywhere in the tennis discourse, we're waiting for Yannick Sinner's big titles to come very quickly. And I know he didn't have to exactly beat a murderer's row here; he still had to beat who he who he did, and I think he was full value for this one. All right, more on some of the the, the stars of Toronto in a bit, but I wanted, I, I've reached the point in the podcast, and I was going to ask this at some point, found the time to ask it. So you m- mentioned the post-Wimbledon malaise, and really for both the men and the women, it's notable that there was a three-week break uh, between the end of Wimbledon and the start of Canada, uh, and Wimbledon ended on July 16th. It, Wimbledon has historically ended second weekend of July, not the third. This This year, uh, we had the calendar being pushed back for Wimbledon, and that squeezed the time uh, gap between uh, Wimbledon and Canada. It, historically, it's been four weeks uh, instead of three. Do you think that loss of an extra week for the top pros, such as Alcaraz, uh, to decompress uh, after a long Wimbledon campaign? You know, the top pros often, you know, take a beach vacation after Wimbledon, you know, to, because, you know, there's so much heavy lifting from the French open and clay carrying over right to Wimbledon prep. You can't really take a vacation after the French open. You just go to grass, you get used to the surface because you don't spend much time on it each year. You really have to just carry over your lunch pail and your suitcase and and get right to work on grass. So the pros have enjoyed having a more expansive, break between Wimbledon and Canada, how much do you think the shorter time period uh, affected the performances of top pros, both in Montreal and Toronto, both WTA and ATP? Yeah, I certainly didn't think it helped. And I think one of one of the big reasons you heard the word uneven used so much um, to describe the play in both cities is, is Due to that, in some respects, Matt, I don't think it helps the fact that there is a bit of compression. I don't think it helps the fact that you have an event in Washington sandwiched um, with uh, Cincinnati and then the meat or the the vegetable patty in the middle of that is Canada. I think it leads to some logistical choices some players chose to make, like Novak Djokovic, who opted to start in Cincinnati rather than in Toronto. I, I, I don't know how this is remedied. I know both... Both tournaments, Cincinnati is going to increase in days in a couple of years, and so will Toronto. But a large part of the end of, of the Canadian Open for me is seeing how quickly everything empties out. 
And that's not to say that the excitement doesn't build for the semifinals and final, but I think the atmosphere changes a lot because you've got people literally looking to catch a cab to the airport to get to Cincinnati as fast as they can. So in some ways it does feel like a waypoint. And I think that that factors into the decision-making by the players and their teams, whether, I don't know, it doesn't mean that I don't think in the third set of a match, Carlos Alcaraz is going to decide to dial it down because he's, he wants to rest. But I, I do think that the mentality going into these tournaments is a bit different and not saying it's bad, but I do think it's different. I do think winning this tournament is still a goal for almost everybody, but for the top, top players, they're they're looking at this a bit differently. All right. Uh, let's talk about the players who made the semifinals. So Tommy Paul upset Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, you had uh, Davidovich, Fakina, and, and Demon Hour making their runs. And, of course, Yannick Sinner breaking through, winning his first Masters uh, 1000 title. Uh, of those four, any particular things that caught your eye about them uh, making their way through the draw? Obviously, you know you mentioned Sinner handling uh, the challenge from Monfils uh, in the quarterfinals, uh, but uh, you know Demonar with you know basically a defense for first game, like he's going to make you hit the extra ball. We we know how he plays. Uh, Davidovich Fakina, you know he's never played a normal match in his life. Always a roller coaster, it seems. Uh, when he's on the court, the Casper Rude match being a classic example, seemed down and out, but rallied late to win that match. And then Paul with, you know, the tremendous win over Alcaraz, which really gives him a boost heading into the U.S. Open in New York. Anything that caught your eye about uh, the four semifinalists in Toronto? I watched a lot of Alex Diebenauer, uh last week, and I, I have to say, I he's one of those players who I, I probably wouldn't have appreciated enough hadn't if I hadn't seen him play live um, as much as I did this week, like you said it well, Matt, he's super fast and a gamer and, and below his battle and, and hang and rallies. And you kind of get to see that on television when they're playing wherever they are across the world. But in person, the dedication, the commitment, the fitness that he has is, is quite eye opening. Um, I found his, his interactions with his coach, very, very hilarious in the sense that his coach didn't offer much. And I don't think Alex did either, except in very key moments or in moments of total exasperation where I think Alex had a perfect confidant in his coach who literally offered so much as a smirk to indicate he heard him, but that's about it. Uh, there wasn't many mannerisms, but I thought from Cam Norian, he played uh, Gabriel Diallo, who's a, a young Canadian who a lot of people up here are excited about. I was watching that match and the atmosphere on court one, which is, is a smaller court was, was pretty electric. And I think there was maybe two people there who wanted Alex to win, but that obviously didn't matter to him. And I, I was just marveling at him turning around the pace that Diallo could generate from both wings and neutralizing it in a way that it felt um, not preordained, but it did feel like no matter how well Gabriel Diallo was hitting the ball, it would not matter against someone like Alex Diebenauer, which I don't think you could say about many competitors at this tournament because Diallo was playing that well. And and he continued it against Taylor Fritz. He was down and out basically in that second set. Uh, didn't look great and, and turned it around in the third set. And I think his mentality is something that gets spoken about a, a bit when there's some comparisons made to Leighton Hewitt and, and, his, and his maybe his his stick and how much he cares. But I, I thought getting a glimpse of that firsthand was pretty eye-opening for me. I mean, that Medvedev quarterfinal, I don't think Daniel Medvedev played super well, but I was fascinating listening, listening to him after the match 
kind of say, well, I, I did the best I could, but playing Alex when he's like that, it doesn't really make you look great. And it, and he's prone to making some other players look quite foolish, even when they're playing somewhat okay in their mind. And I thought that was really interesting to hear from Daniel Medvedev. I, I really want to see what Alex Diwinar can do from here. I know he's been consistently in the top 30 and he was talking about that this week about how proud he was about that consistency but this was a new level i saw from him and and i know he's only 24 years old so i feel like there's some room to grow here and i'm quite excited for that it's a real reminder that there are many ways to win professional tennis matches sometimes it's by playing great but other times it's by making the opponent play poorly yeah and we saw that from alex demonar in toronto all right so, Devang, we're almost there. We're almost at the point where we get your insights on Canadian players and some of the coaches of Canadian players up there in Toronto. We definitely want to highlight that. But before that, one more non-Canadian on our menu, and that's Guile Monfils, fan favorite. We know that what he's been through. And, like, you know, a couple years ago in Australia, he was crying. You know, just, you know, he was going through a very long losing streak. He wondered if he would ever regain top form again. And, of course, of course more recently, marriage uh, and uh giving you know alina svitolina giving birth to uh his first uh, child definitely a wonderful blissful transformative moment and this was a transformed man this was a transformed tennis player in toronto with a revival that you know electrified the crowd you know no one in tennis doesn't like guile monfils he's he always lights up the room wherever he goes on tour so it was wonderful to see any insights into what made this turnaround, what made this week so special for Guile Monfils? You know, I, it's, it'll sound like chalk, but man, he moved great. And I, I feel like this is probably the healthiest he's felt in some time. I think he's 276 in the world, but he was mentioning how moving on the court was the happiest feeling he had um, this week. And, and to have that movement, which for Gale feels like 98% of the game, right? Like his game is so contingent on that i you uh, you didn't ask me this yet matt but i was gonna say by match of the week might have happened in the first round that eubanks match that they had um because i feel like chris eubanks obviously a new fan favorite and, and someone who's incredibly well spoken and does a ton, a ton of tennis media and we got to see how good his game was at wimbledon but we got to see maybe an older version in, in the sense of gail monfils has been doing this for quite a long time and i don't think many people had him coming through that match let alone the next one. But just to give you a taste of why he's so beloved, you'd have a hard time guessing who is 270 plus in the world and who is in the top five in that second round match with Pass because it really did look like Steph Pass wanted to be anywhere but there. And for a bunch of people who paid a ton of money to come watch this match, it felt a bit, not disrespectful, but a bit of a shame because I, I just Steph was not up for it. And in the inverse, Gale was 110% up for it. And I think that's just how he carried himself this week. He, he wanted to entertain the people, but I think he also wanted to get a check of where his level is and to lose to the eventual champion in three sets. How could that not? Uh, keep the fire lit and keep you to want going because he's clearly not far away. I, that Sitsi Pass match was totally confounding in the sense that I, I don't know what was going through Steph's head, but this is someone who had a lot of success in Toronto and Gail basically walked him off the court. That has to feel good for him moving forward. All right. Now we get to the Canadians and uh, really the, the the heart of your week in Toronto, you're working for a Canadian media company. Obviously that's that's a pretty big deal for you and the people that you work with at Sportsnet. So start with Milos Raonic 
and you know made a made the Wimbledon final in 2016, and I uh, I noted during the tournament, Gael Monfils is playing well, Milos Raonic is playing well. Have we all teleported back to 2016? <laughs> yeah. uh, are we all seven years younger? That would be pretty great. How much did this seem to catch people off guard? Uh, because I think I know that you know just the general tennis public around the world like we were you know going whoa like where did this come from but should we really be too surprised about this because and you mentioned Gael being Gael Monfils being healthy you know Milos Raonic like he's had a million injuries in his career but looked pretty fit looked pretty good on court is it really just a matter of Milos Raonic (laughs) after all this time being healthy and also and of course he hasn't played a ton of matches so he was fresh he was able to, you know, slug it out with Tiafo uh, in a very extended uh, match. It just was it mostly just about being fresh, and and should we not be as surprised as m- many people are uh, with his run in Canada? I, th- I still a bit surprised. I mean, a lot was made up here about Milos's fitness. He did look great, and I, I think the new diet that will be sweeping the nation will be a steak and water, which Milos attributed his uh, his rapid weight loss to, which I'm not sure we could all pull that off, but he looked great. He wasn't wearing any sweatbands, arm sleeve, headband, nothing, which I thought was a bit interesting as well. That's right. Uh, he Here's why I was not that surprised, Matt. I mean, the Tommy Paul loss at Wimbledon, I mean, Tommy Paul looked okay in the fourth set and, and maybe he was going to be okay all along. But I, I thought Milos's level there was a bit eye-opening in itself to push someone like that that far along. And I thought that the, the draw was positive for him in the sense that it's better to face someone like Francis Tiafo in center court at nighttime rather than starting with maybe Taro Daniel on on court one in the daytime to less fanfare i think the atmosphere was perfect for him and he was going to get up to play the number nine player in this tournament so i i was not totally surprised i am a bit surprised and this will sound a bit foolish considering how long wheelish has been in the game for but the fact that he can generate 137 with ease at surf consistently is just a marvel to me and consistently keeps him in this conversation. I, I was talking to my coworkers after the match against Tiafo, but he was pretty noncommittal about his future and about what it means um, for him the rest of the season and maybe even next season. But you have to imagine that win against someone like Francis will keep him going at least for the next little bit because it wasn't anything physically that happened to him this week that stopped him from moving on. I think against Mackie McDonald, his serve deserted him and and honestly, it was a bit of an unforced error spree in spurts during that match. So I don't think that was anything about physical. I think that was just his game not being there, which to me is a great sign because I feel like you could see Milos playing not just for the rest of this season, but perhaps next year as well, which I think is the biggest shock of all, because I mean, this is someone who hasn't played in two years and we were all considering uh, writing our retirement columns not too long ago. All right, let's get into some of the interviews that you had uh, during the week in Toronto. So you talked to Felix Oje Aliasim's uh, team. What insights did you get from, you know, what they were saying about Felix? And of course, as we record this podcast, you know, Cincinnati has started and Felix got a huge win huge. over Matteo Berrettini. But of course, when in Toronto, you know, he, he crashed out early. So what was the conversation you had uh, with, with with his uh, coaching team and, and what insights did you glean from that? 
Yeah, so we talked to Frederick Fontaine, who's been Felix's coach uh, for quite a while now, at least since Felix has been in his 20s. And I I think the biggest takeaway I had from this is that we didn't really have a gauge of how injured Felix was this year. And I, I do think this was maybe a case of, a, of a, a youngster or someone in their early 20s pushing their bodies to a point where the ability to heal wasn't happening, happening at the speed they wanted. So I think injury-wise... We don't really know how badly Felix has been hurt this year, but I think it had been worse than we had been led to believe. And that withdrawal before Wimbledon and Leon, which which was maybe framed as more of a resting up for the slams, was more of a he needed to rest because he was injured kind of thing. So I think that was a bit eye-opening. And then the other sense is that, you know, I how do you work on something during a season in which there's so little time to, to practice and work on your game and how do you improve on things? And I think the way Fontag framed this is, is trying to dive less into the actual mechanics of a player's shots at this point and trying to dig into maybe the mental aspects of what's holding them back. And, and the way Felix had been speaking coming into Canada, it felt very down and, and, and maybe uh, self-deprecating and not, not as positive and uplifting as you want. And I think I sensed a real change of that in Toronto with the way he spoke to the press and with the way his coaches spoke as well about the bigger picture, about how eventually it's going to come. And I know that this is a results oriented business, but it's not going to be right away. It's going to take some time for him to find himself. So I think hearing that from Fred Fontaine and hearing how calm he was, it may watching him beat Berrettini the way he did feel quite good. Because I think, Matt, this is exactly what they were talking about. We love to see the wins. We love to see a run at their home tournament. But this is not linear. And for someone like Felix, who is under the radar, battled a lot of injuries, different injuries this year, it's not going to be a completely smooth return to normal. So we have to expect more bumps along the way, even after the Berrettini one. Okay. Are there details you can divulge in terms of injuries that the public might not have seen or been aware of because obviously certain kinds of injuries are more significant than others for a tennis player just as they are for any athlete in any sport that there are certain uh kinds of injuries that are going to carry more weight and have more impact on your game is there what is is there like a specific under the radar injury that felix has been carrying around that's been uh, affecting his play well, I, I don't know if it's necessarily under the radar, but like his knee injury that, that kind of ruined that post-Australia stretch was bad, bad. Like, I, I don't think he should have been playing that often during that stretch. And I think that that to me kind of set up what happened in the weeks after that. Um, I I feel like for Felix, the, the idea of... of playing but also maintaining his ranking and the standing in the game was really important to him and that might have taken over mentally at a point where the body was being neglected slightly i think he had a bunch of stomach issues as well in the middle of of the summer here in the french open but the knee issue i think was chief amongst them the biggest problem well that's very that's very interesting to know and very worthwhile to pass along to our audience here at uh, tennis with an accent all right another uh, interview you had was with the director of performance for Tennis Canada and like Devang, you and Canadians, like there are a few central 
sports questions in Canada. One, can the Leafs please score more goals in the playoffs? <laughs> can Vladdy hit more cool. homers? Can Alec Manoa learn to throw strikes for the love of God? And what's happened with Canadian tennis this year? So we, we can't answer those questions about the Leafs or the Blue Jays, but we can certainly drill deeper on, you know, what's been yeah. a frustrating year for Canadian tennis. Also, Bianca Andreescu l- losing early uh, in Montreal. And of course, you know, like she's been through the ringer in terms of injuries and just, you know, having being able to just play four or five months straight without an injury issue coming up. And, and you've detailed Felix's injury struggles. Milos Raonic has been an injury magnet for much of his career. And then you have Denis Shapovalov, uh, who's trying to put the pieces together. So when you talk to the director of performance uh, for Tennis Canada, what did you learn? And and beyond what was said, was there anything you could read uh, between the lines about what you were hearing? Yeah, I mean, I, and we had talked to him after all the Canadians were out of the single straws. So it was a bit of a post-mortem. And I... It's funny. I think, I mean, the injury stuff with Bianca is well known and she had a small stress fracture in her back at this tournament, which whenever you hear small stress fracture in her back, you immediately think the worst, but then it's Bianca as well. And it's like, well, what, how much worse luck can she have? You know, it's funny though, Matt, like that match against Camilla Georgie, it just got hit off the court clean. Camilla Georgie did what Camilla Georgie does every now and then. And that's play lights out. Amazing tennis. Uh, didn't really know she was injured until after the match. And I think with Marx, Guillaume Marx, what we what we kind of discussed regarding Bianca and maybe more so Layla is what happens when you're out of rhythm, you're hurt, and subsequently your ranking suffers and you do have to start over, but you start over in a place where the expectations haven't realigned with where you're at. So for Layla, she's not even getting into these tournaments without having to qualify. Like I believe she didn't even qualify for Cincinnati. She lost to Navarro in the last or in the first round of qualifying there. So she's not in Cincinnati. Most likely she'll be in New York, but that immediately sets you behind the eight ball. So they were looking at other ways in which Layla can continue to get match play, high level match play, maintain that competitive feeling while acknowledging that she's still working her way back up the rankings. How do you do that? Well, you go play doubles a bunch with Taylor Townsend and have some excellent success there and try and key in on that and focus in on that mentally to support your goals as a singles player. Because I think the hardest thing that's happened for both Bianca and Layla is suffering this glut where not only has their results fallen to a point which they don't like, but their ranking has fallen to a point where they're not getting the opportunities to, to rebuild that consistency and get that feeling of winning on the court. So the point, the fact that Mark's repeatedly mentioned how important Layla's doubles season has been for her was very interesting for me because I think we always obviously hear a lot about the singles tennis game and the tours and we focus in on that and we'll key on on doubles at the slams maybe or when there's high profile players playing but we don't really look at it too extensively maybe not the, the casual tennis fan but how how important it's been for someone like Layla this year was was really interesting to me because we've mentioned this a thousand times and I'm sure you guys have as well, but how lonely the sport is and how alone you can feel when the failures pile up on each other, but to, to find some success with a partner as well and find success with someone like Taylor Townsend, who's been through the ringer herself in terms of battling against adversity. I think that will help Layla immeasurably going forward. It's one of those things again, though, that we'll have to wait to see the progress. 
Now, this is like a structural question in terms of, you know, the relationship between Tennis Canada and Canadian players and their coaching teams. Like how much of a line of communication, how much access is there in terms of Tennis Canada with a pl- Canadian player's coaching team? Or is there like a firewall and it's, it's, it's a situation where, you know, the, the coach and player really have to let ten- Tennis Canada into the camp you know, in terms of taking on advice, suggestions. And I raise that because, you know, Felix has been uh, playing at times when, frankly, he shouldn't have, you know, because he wants to keep his ranking right. up. But but really, you know, his health should have dictated that he not play. We've seen Andrescu take the court plenty of times when, you know what, taking care of her body might have recommended that, you know what, she shouldn't have played. So that does raise the question of, you know, if is Tennis Canada – uh, able to intervene to a certain extent with these po- Canadian players, or are the coaches holding Tennis Canada at bay such that you know there is a firewall and the line of communication is not as fluid, perhaps as it should be? And what do you think about that, Devang? What do you, what do yeah. you think in terms of what you're seeing in terms of Tennis Canada either not managing these players enough, or the coaches preventing Tennis Canada from do that? From doing that, what what's your sense of the matter? It's a good question. I, I I almost look at it as a as a university in the sense where a couple of players have almost graduated out and are now finding out things on their own. Like Fred Fontang was a Tennis Canada person and and was brought in by Tennis Canada to help out with some of their young stars, and Felix was one of them. So there's obviously communication maintained there, but I do think they're at different places. Like for example, I think Layla and her team and their line of communication with tennis Canada might be a little stronger at this point than it is for some of the older players who have, who've been able to do this tour grind themselves a bit more. Not to say Layla hasn't had a lot of experience herself, but she's still 20 years old. The coaches that are in place right now do have a lot of links to tennis Canada. So I do think the communication lines remain strong, but I do I do think that the the decision making is far more on the player these days than it used to be than maybe a 19-year-old Felix or an 18-year-old Felix like when Felix was 20 and he was working with Yo Marks he wanted a challenge he wanted to switch up coaches he wanted a new voice Tennis Canada helped him with that if he was to make that decision now or maybe even say last year with someone like Tony Nadal I don't think there is involved any other really big eye-opening insights you got from talking to the people at Tennis Canada with the coaches of Canadian players, other things we might not have talked about that you want to make sure uh, our listeners at Tennis with an Accent get to hear about? Watch out for Gabriel Diallo. I think he's he's a late late bloomer. Um, we heard this a lot. He, he, he kind of figured it out quite late um, for a tennis player these days. I mean, it's not so late anymore, and we see so many players – going the college route, but he did that as well. He went to the University of Kentucky and then left before his senior year or during his senior year, sorry, to try the the pro circuit out. But he's beat Dan Evans twice already within like two months. And I, I do have to say, watching him live and up close, he has the feel of someone who will be a top 30 player. And I've been wrong several thousand times before guys, but I I feel like Gabriel Diallo has the ingredients needed to be a consistently, uh, a consistent top 30 to top 40 player. And I'm really excited for that. I think you're going to see him 
play a larger role than maybe we expected at the Davis Cup as well, with Felix not being there for Canada. So keep an eye out for Gabriel Diallo, six foot eight, tall lad who can move extremely well and it's got power from both wings. All right. I don't know if you talked to anybody uh, about this uh, in, in Toronto, but you know, next year, as we know, it's going to be an Olympic year. And so every four years, Toronto yeah. and Montreal have to deal with the Olympic squeeze and, and the Olympics plunked into the middle of the summer calendar. And it's always a big point of uh, inconvenience for the Toronto and Montreal tour stops. Was there a discussion about, you know, hey, how do we deal with this Olympic problem long term? Like, should we consider moving uh, Toronto and Montreal, you know, to, let's say, uh, you know, the spring, or can we do it in maybe uh, early October, maybe like, you know, have it at uh, Scotiabank Arena, you know, have (laughs) have an indoor, have an indoor tournament uh, in the Olympic years instead of outdoor, like, are, are, are Toronto and Montreal resigned to the fact that, you know, every Olymp- every four years, we're just going to have a, uh, a like, a, you know, a, a tournament that's going to be, you know, shoved around into a corner by the Olympics. Or are there any talks about how to make certain adjustments for Olympic years, such as next year? To be honest, I didn't hear much um, this week, Matt, about it. I, I think they just realized this is their lot uh, in life and in, in the summer calendar and, and on for for a couple of reasons, I think this tournament falls in an excellent place in the Canadian sports calendar, considering really the, all that's going on around them is the Toronto Blue Jays season. And I mean, there's other sports as well, but in terms of like the big, the big four or the big five, you really had limited selection in town. So I think they really like that aspect and what they lose, maybe an exposure commercially and, and through television, they still are seeing uh, an increase in numbers of people on the grounds year after year. So I think they're, they're okay with that. What I, I do wonder if they've talked about, or if this is even something that's on their radar is if they can think of a roof situation or if they can think of a covering situation for their, their show courts, because I mean, they don't have a lot of time to work with. Um, and you get into situations like we had where you have uh, multiple players calling out the WTA um, for what happened in Montreal. I wonder for for going forward in a way to maybe neutralize the elements as best they can, have they thought about some protective covering for their, their show courts? Because I feel like this has been a problem, obviously, since these tournaments have existed, but I, I, they can't really control the weather and it, it leads to some unfortunate um disparities and fairness i think so I, for me the olympics are here to stay we just got to deal with it but also maybe we should build a couple roofs the bang desai he works for sportsnet uh, one of the great uh, sports uh, broadcasters uh in canada uh you know you want to get elite sports coverage you go to sportsnet so devang and the team at sportsnet uh constantly hard at work uh to serve their canadian audience and devang you've served our audience at tennis with an accent really well with your on the ground uh, reportage and insight uh, from Toronto. Devang Desai, we really thank you for joining us here on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Thanks for having me. Love the show. Love the, what you guys do. It was a pleasure.